As gospel-centered Christians, we believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God, that it divides bone from marrow and that it points to salvation in Jesus Christ, that it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Typically, when we think of the Bible being the word of God, important statements come to mind, such as, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? Genesis 1.1. Or we think of the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, Luke 19 and 10. Rarely, though, do we think of phrases like, greet Rufus and his mother, as being the living and active word of God. It's not really one of those verses you'd find on anyone's memorization list, right? It's not, it's not really one thing that you'd hear in a, like a Bible study. Hey, what's one thing the Lord's been teaching you? Well, he's been teaching me that Paul greeted Rufus and his mother. Just really touched my heart. It's not really something you'd, you'd find in that. But because we, what we believe about the Bible, we believe that every word, including these greetings, the greeting to Rufus and his mother, even something seemingly mundane as a greeting like that is given for our edification in the faith. It's given for us to be built up and to be matured as gospel-centered people. While we might be tempted to skim through or even skip over the greeting section of Romans 16, there are gospel truths in this section that can press this church to an even greater health and faithfulness. By reading Romans 16... We have the blessing of getting to go back in time, so to speak. If you wanted to look and see what relationships in the early church look like, we get to look at what early friendships in the early church look like. We get to see uh, its fond just familiarity with each other. We see it's closer than family bonds. We see it's loving unity. We see a group of people who truly, not just in word, but who truly love each other. They miss each other and they long for the day that they can be with each other. Even in something as simple as Paul saying, hello, in Romans 16, we see the goal of what a gospel-centered church should be. Now, most of this text consists of his team, Paul and his team, greeting the Romans. Greet so-and-so, greet so-and-so, greet so-and-so, and it's, and it's done in such a way that the monotony of it's enough to lull you into sleep and cause you to miss some key details, right? Greet this guy, greet that guy. However, as mundane as you might think it is, there are several characteristics about the early church that can be applied to the modern church, even from these few verses. First, we find that a gospel-healthy church is one that enjoys a diverse unity. A gospel-healthy church is one that enjoys a diverse unity. As author and Christian entrepreneur Andy Crouch pointed out in a recent sermon, the names found in Romans 16, just the very names and their presence in this list, teaches a great lesson about Christian unity. He calls this section the most sociologically stunning chapter in the whole Bible. In surveying the names in this section, you find several uh, realities. You find Greek names like Hermes, Hermas, and Olympus. You find Roman names, Aristobulus. You find the names of Jews, Herodian, Lucius, Jason, Sosipater. You find names of females, Phoebe, Prisca, who's also known as Priscilla, and Junia. And then you find the names of males, Aquila, Andronicus. That's a pretty manly name, right? Andronicus. What's your name? Andronicus. A friend of Spartus. 
you know. You find names that carry the dignity of aristocrats, right? Gaius, Erastus, those are just high-sounding names anyway. And then you have names that may have belonged to slaves, Tertius and Quartus. These names represent people from many different socioeconomic backgrounds, slaves and city officials together in the same list, many different ethnicities, Jews, Greeks, and Romans all being greeted together. Now, Crouch in this sermon, I encourage you, I can send you the link later this week if you want to listen to this 18-minute sermon, which is profound, 18 minutes, and one that I will not be able to do today. So um, if you want a shorter version of Crouch's point, you can go look it up. But he hones in in verse 23, and to prove his point about the beautiful unity of this underrated passage, he begins to point out the reality, that the amazing fact that Tertius is mentioned in this list. Here, Paul's scribe greets the Roman church. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me, and the whole church, and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Now, in the ancient Roman world, slaves were not always given names unless they were freed. In fact, many slaves were not even given a personhood, were not even recognized as people until they were freed. And so names come with a personhood. So oftentimes slaves would not be, they'd be known by their masters or they'd be known by birth order or something like that, but they wouldn't be given an individual name unless they were freed. Now, in this case, we find slaves who are named after their birth order. We find the scribe Tertius, which is Latin for the third. That's his name. What's your name? I'm the third. The third one born. He's not given a personhood. He's not given a a name or an identity because he's a slave. And then he has a friend named Quartus who is known as the fourth. Now, through this verse, we find two former slaves or possibly still present day slaves, the third and the fourth, and they're meeting and staying in the same house of high class officials like Gaius and fellowshipping with high officials, city treasures like Erastus. Now the point's subtle, but this verse gives us an important glimpse into the impact that the gospel had on people in the ancient world. In the Roman world, there's a clear distinction between rich and poor, low class and high class, slaves and freemen. All society was built on maintaining these distinctions, which doors the slaves could enter in and which doors the high officials could enter in. Um, We even see it in like the letter of James, right? When a rich man entered into a room, the poor were expected to give up their seat, even if it meant sitting on the floor in honor to the wealthy. Now, of course, James calls such partiality absolute sin and tells the church to avoid it at all costs. But it's not all that abnormal in that culture. It was totally acceptable in the Roman culture to insist that lower class people sit in the floor, wealthier people sit in chairs, to give up the place of honor for different people. So the whole Roman world was established on keeping these class systems, these distinctions in their particular order. Now, these distinctions, however, fade in the Roman church. There's no special place for the wealthy, for the influential, for the powerful. The poor aren't made to sit in the floor. Here, slaves and high officials have become beloved brothers. In fact, it's people like Gaius and Erastus who served the former slaves, 
by welcoming them into their house. It's in Gaius's house that the church meets. It's in Gaius's house that he becomes host, the hospitality, the, the, the friend of Tertius and Quartus. He welcomes in these slaves into his house to show them kindness. And then you find the city treasurer, Erastus, greeting the Romans along with his low, lowly brother, Quartus. It reminds us of that old Christmas hymn, doesn't it? The old, the old, old holy night. Remember it sings, chains shall he break for the slave is our brother. Isn't that what the gospel has done? As evidenced by this diversity, the church is a place where external distinctions crumble. There's no one more important here than the one sitting next to you. Distinctions crumble. The gospel of Jesus breaks down the dividing wall of hostility. It brings people together into the same family where there is no distinction between Jew, Greek, Roman, slave, free, male or female. Instead, in a gospel-centered church that has been truly impacted by the gospel, we are all one in Christ Jesus. Each one of us bringing our offering of worship to the Lord, not powering over each other, not expecting reverence from each other, not expecting uh, others to, to pay us due diligence because of our position at work. We come in as equal brothers and sisters in Christ because we have all been saved by grace through faith in Jesus. So a gospel healthy church is one that you find Tertius, Quartus, Gaius, and Erastus sitting in the same living room, drinking from the same coffee cups, laughing and greeting the church together. That's what a gospel-healthy gospel church should look like. Second, we learn from this section that a gospel-healthy church functions like a family. Paul, a Jew, a staunch Jew at that. In fact, a former Pharisee, a Pharisee who hated Gentiles and who hated Christians, he refers to the Corinthian-based, a.k.a. Gentile Phoebe, as our sister. How beautiful is that? A Pharisee calling a Gentile our sister? God forbid. That's, that's where the gospel has brought him. He goes on to refer to several of these Gentiles on this list as his beloved, the ones that he loves. He greets Rufus and his mother, who's been a mother to me as well. He greets several who are his ethnic kinsmen, and then he greets Hermes and Petrobas and Hermas and the brothers who are with them. He sees them as his own little fraternity, his own little brothers. In verse 23, Tertius, Gaius, and Erastus, and Cordus, as we have already seen, though they come from different social stations, they see each other as brothers. They are brothers together in Christ. Now we should add to this the command found in verse 16 that believers are to greet one another with a holy kiss. Now before you get up and start puckering up, that's equivalent to today's handshake or hug, okay? All right, so anybody kisses me afterwards, you're gonna get decked, all right? So this is a cultural norm, right? So don't walk around giving people kisses, just give them hugs or handshakes if they will you to do so. So not only do the early believers use these family, see their uh, bond as like a family tie. They see themselves, they greet one another like family. That's where we got the terms brother and say, hello brother, hello sister. We, we see each other as family. We greet each other as family. And yet that's the base of our affection for one another. We don't see each other just as mere church members. 
fellow Christians. We don't, we're not just in the same club together, right? Like we all wear the Christian t-shirt and we're all good together. No, we see each other as family. And what a diverse family at that. People who have almost nothing else in common, not age in common, not political background in common, not economic or social background in common, but sheerly the fact that we have been brought together into the same family of God by our faith in Jesus, our common acknowledgement that we were sinful in need of salvation and that Jesus is the one who has brought that. That's what's made us a family. The family language in this section is intentional. It shows just how deep the unity that the gospel brings goes. The Jewish Paul does not see these Gentile Romans and Gentiles and Greeks and all these different people as just people he's greeting. It's, this is his family. This is their reality. It is the family of God, the oikos, the household of God. My friends, the gospel runs so deep that it makes us and people all over the world, people from every tribe, nation, and tongue come together into the same household of God. It's not just a metaphor. It's a reality. We are not like family. We are family. That's the reality that the gospel has brought. The third characteristic is that a gospel-healthy church suffers with and for each other. We see this explicitly in the way that Paul speaks about Prisca. As I've mentioned earlier, she's also known as Priscilla and Aquila who, and look at what he says in verse three, risked their necks for my life. When was the last time you met someone who risked their neck for you? The risk was a great service for Paul and the Gentiles. He says, we're all in their debt. Thank you for risking your necks for us. He greets Andronicus and Junia who are his quote, fellow prisoners, which implies that they are suffering. They're, they're, they're probably a husband and wife couple. This is Andronicus and Junia, which is kind of a female name. So uh, it's, it's probably a husband and wife couple who are so taken up with sharing the gospel, they're in prison together. They're suffering for the sake of the gospel. Now, in this brief glimpse into the early church, we see people who are quite literally, not metaphorically, literally willing to lay down their lives for each other. To literally, not figuratively, but to literally die for each other. They were willing to make the ultimate sacrifice. And not only did they suffer for each other, they suffered with each other. They stepped up to bat with each other. It's truly a beautiful thing to think of Aquila and Prisca laying down their necks for Paul, but then you get Andronicus and Junius, this husband and wife ministry team, loving Jesus so much that they, prefer, they suffer imprisonment together and earn a reputation of faithfulness and suffering even among the Gentile, even among the apostles as they suffer. So I think here in this list of names, we see a gospel healthy church is one that doesn't just suffer with each other, like we're gonna suffer together, but suffers for each other. Now, in our postmodern context, we can be pretty selfish people. The goal is to, you know, highlight what we think, whether we think we're right and wrong, right or wrong. The goal is to preserve the self, and the goal is to avoid suffering at all cost. Typically, now that said, to suffer with. 
to step up to bat, to join the ranks of people who are going under some kind of hardship or to suffer for someone else, kind of taking their place, is not something that comes natural to us. We naturally are fight or flight type people. We don't really think about suffering for someone. However, when we think about the early church's commitment to suffer well for each other, we see that they were simply following in the footsteps of their savior who took on flesh to suffer with humanity and for humanity. After all, were they not told to love each other as what? Christ loved us? Well, how had Christ loved us? He took on flesh and bone and blood to suffer with us. Why? So that he could also suffer for us. We follow our Savior in carrying crosses, dying for each other, sticking our necks out, stepping into each other's messes so that we could die and then trusting that there will be a glorious resurrection, that if God does call us to stick out our necks and then sticking out our necks for each other, it costs us our head to trust that God is a God who can put that head back on our shoulders and cause us to walk again. We are people who follow the model of Jesus to the T, suffering with and for each other. By having this kind of love for each other, do you, do you see what the world sees? The world sees little displays of Jesus walking around for each other. Where they, not everyone's gonna get to make it to Golgotha and see the hill and to see the empty tomb. But right here in Ovilla, they get a chance to see the life of Jesus rehearsed and reenacted in the way that you live for each other. Our natural tendency is to bicker, to gossip, to fight, to hurt, to maim, to attack each other. And yet, in this list, we see people sticking their necks out for each other because Jesus stuck out his neck for them. That's what a gospel-healthy church should be. People suffering with, not gossiping about, and people suffering for, not judging each other. That's what he's called us to. Now, fourth, we see that a gospel-healthy church is incredibly active. It's not boring. It's not bored. It's active in sharing the gospel. The chapter begins by asking the Roman church to help Phoebe in whatever she needs because she is a patron. And if you look at the word, it can mean benefactor to many. She is a known servant in the church of Sinecre. Now, we don't know much about Phoebe. In fact, this is the only place in all the scripture that she really uh, uh, turns up. Is she a college student, college-age student? Is she a young woman? Is she an elderly woman? Is she a widow? Has she been married? Was she married? We don't know. All we know is clear that Phoebe was active in serving others. She held, probably held a high position. The word that's used um, for servant there is actually deaconess, it's deacon. So she probably held a position of deacon or a deaconess in the church of Sinecre, not elder, wanna be clear about that, right? She held a position of deaconess in the church. She was serving the church of Sinecre and had developed a reputation as a great support to many Christians, Paul included. She loved others to the extent that she was willing to travel more than 800 miles over sea and land to take Paul's letter to the Romans. That's the distance between Sinecre, which is in Corinth, and Rome. 800 miles, most of it on a boat, some of it on land, and with no cars, no planes, just 
riding to Rome, maybe walking. Some of us struggle to go to the drugstore for each other. (laughs) Phoebe goes 800 miles just to take a letter. If Paul needs a letter carrier, then she's it. She's more than happy. She seems to be, the, the word patron there insists that she's probably someone who's relatively comfortable too. She's probably a wealthy woman. Give her t- I mean, it seems like she's using her, her position to resource Paul and to, she has the resources necessary to purchase and self-fund an 800-mile trip from, from Sinecre to Rome. So this wealthy woman's not someone in the back with her arms crossed saying, somebody else go, I'll fund it. No, she says, I'll fund it and I'll go. This is an active church. I, I, I love to, I don't, we don't know how old she is, but I love to imagine she's elderly. I love to imagine that she's in the prime of her life, right? This golden aged woman, one of the golden girls. And she gets on this boat with a letter to take it to the Roman church, just as an expression of love, just so that the Romans could hear the gospel again and again and again in this letter. And so that we in Ovilla could hear this letter to the Romans in 2022. This trip that she took is the reason you're reading it today. You never know the impact a little trip to the drugstore can have on someone. Imagine what kind of impact 800 miles can have on the church. In this list of name, we also find people like Prisca, Priscilla, Aquila, Urbanus, and Timothy, whom Paul calls my fellow workers, right? So this isn't a church that all looks to Paul to do the work. This is a church where people are laboring together. It's a, it's a healthy church who are working together for the health of the church and the spread of the gospel. We, we actually know quite a bit about Priscilla and Aquila. They were a husband and wife tag team. They were passionate about discipleship. They met with Apollos. They set him straight on some occasions. We know that they were Jews living in Rome, um, which is why they get this greeting in Romans. And we also know by, that by 1 Corinthians 16, 19, they've been kicked out of Rome. Why? Because the emperor Claudius got sick of the Jews and said they, they needed to get out. So he kicks out all the Jews. Well, they're Jewish. They had to leave Rome. Ministry over, right? So they're receiving this letter. He talks about my fellow workers. Years later, they're out of Rome, and where do we find them? Well, in 1 Corinthians 16 and in Acts 18, we find out they get kicked out of Rome. They got deported, and that became their ministry send-off to plant a church in their home in Corinth. That's where we find them in Acts 18. They're working as tent makers. They're building tents, and while they're at it, as they're making money, they buy a house, and they plant a church in it. And they continue going. I'm not sure I have that level of tenacity to get kicked out and keep going. Like most of us, we see the minor obstacle in the way, time, schedules, money, whatever it is. We're like, oh, can't do the ministry. Well, Priscilla and Aquila, they're like, ah, what's a little thing like exile? (laughs) Let's start a church in Corinth. I can just imagine these two couples just having a perpetual smile on their face and this optimism that they're gonna get to continue going, not because of what they've received, but because of what they can give. They're going to Corinth, that godless place. You know, the Corinthian letter is not a nice letter. They're not going to be around nice people. They're planting a church among ragamuffin believers. 
And yet they have a tenacity to keep going. That's the kind of activity we're called to. We also see the same tenacity and activity in Timothy. You guys all know Timothy is uh, a young uh, believer that Paul has met in Lystra, right? And we also know that Paul became one of, uh, uh, Timothy became one of Paul's most faithful workers, even earning the title of son with Paul. Well, what we know from 2 Timothy is that Paul eventually sent uh, it, Paul eventually sent Timothy off to Ephesus, which is, again, not a nice place. This is the place where the, um, the silver makers, the silver beaters, whatever you call them, silversmiths? Yeah. Silversmiths, they, they get together and they riot because the idol cells have gone so down because the, is, the idol economy is crashing because there's so many Christians. People are, are repenting and converting to Jesus and they're no longer biting, buying their idols, so they gather up and declare war on the Christians in the city. That's where Timothy's sent to continue to help the church there. So not a nice place. He faced danger from within, uh, from without, and danger from within. In addition to the persecution that he faces outside the church, he's dealing with dissension and a bunch of know-it-all kind of doctrinal people who get up to try to preach a contrary doctrine. I can't imagine what that must have looked like in Ephesus to where he's preaching and some dude stands up and says, actually, Timothy, you know, it goes off in some random tangent of an anti-gospel teaching. Now, as you can imagine, Timothy got sick of it. He was tired of it. And from 2 Timothy, it kind of seems like Timothy wanted to throw in the towel. He was done. He grew tired of it. The whole point of 2 Timothy is Paul telling Timothy, don't give up. Remember your heritage, your grandmother, your mother. Remember what I've taught you. Remember my chains. Remember the high calling that you've been given to preach the gospel. Don't throw in the towel. Keep going and keep persevering. Now, you know, I uh, know a lot of pastors and I myself have been there near burnout at a lot of different points in time. And 2 Timothy is an incredible inspiration to young ministers still today. It seems like it did the trick because we find out later in Hebrews chapter 13, 23, which is long after the letter to, the second, to 2 Timothy, the long after the letter that Paul sent to Timothy, that Timothy apparently kept going so much and so hard in the gospel that he was jailed for it. Hebrews 13 says, our brother Timothy's getting released today. What an amazing little statement there that you get 2 Timothy where Paul's telling Timothy, don't give up, don't throw in the towel. And you're just like, well, what happened to Timothy? Did he give up? Did he quit? Did he walk away from the ministry? And then you get in Hebrews 13, hey, Timothy's getting released from prison today. Let's pray for him. This tenacious activity, tenacious. We're not gonna give up. We're not gonna stop. You imprison us, we get back out and we go back to town. We go back to work. You kick us out of Rome, we're gonna plant a church in Corinth. Can't meet in a church building, great, it'll be in our house. Can't afford to plant one, great, we'll be tent makers and then we'll plant one anyway with the money that we earn. That's the kind of tenacity that Christians, gospel healthy Christians are to work with. This list in Romans 16 is filled with these names. These are people that you may never know. We don't know their stories, like who is Rufus? Apparently, he became like a brother to Paul whose mom became like a mother to him. In what way? I mean, 
biographies could be made if we found out about the lives of these men. These are the kind of people that you put on your shelf and you pick off a biography to, to read their incredible lives of faith and we don't even know their story and, and name after name after name of ordinary Christians who kept diligently pressing forward in the gospel. We may never know who Rufus was, but one thing we know is that he and his mother were an incredible encouragement to Paul and the gospel spread because of it. History may never know your name. And yet a gospel healthy Christian works tenaciously. There's a famous quote, I think from a guy named Count Zizendorf. Well, the name is that, right? Count Zizendorf has amazing advice for young preachers. Live faithful preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Sign me up. But those are exactly what these people are living out. They lived faithful, they preached the gospel, they died, and the only memory that we have is that Paul said hello to them. That's it. And yet that's what God has called you to be as his people. History may forget. They may have nothing more than your name on a piece of paper when somebody said hello to you. God never forgets his people and the tenacious activity they did for him. Finally, we see that a gospel healthy church sees itself as a part of a global body. The names on this list represent people that Paul had worked with in various different settings. He probably met Phoebe on his way to Corinth or around Corinth. He worked with Aquila and Priscilla, maybe even met them in Jerusalem. Um, who knows? Um, and then you have his closest coworkers like Timothy, who he met in Lystra, which is a totally different city. As we know from First and Second Timothy, he eventually had to tell Timothy goodbye, his son, his spiritual son. He had to say goodbye to him and send him away to Ephesus because that's where the need was. He's been to many places. He's met many people. He's established many friendships. And he's had to live through the sad reality of having to tell those friends goodbye for gospel reasons. Paul's greeting reminds us that believers meet in order to part that no gathering on this earth is permanent. Each one of us will at one point or another have to say goodbye. They meet in order to part, but when they part, as we see in Romans 16, they part in the faith that they're gonna be gathered back together again. That's, that's the image of this global church. The early church was a church that scattered well. They didn't split off. They didn't, they didn't divide. They didn't fight. There weren't these church splits like that going on. No, if they split, it was a gospel split. It was a way that they send each other out. They're sending out each other. Paul sending Phoebe. The Corinthian church sending Phoebe. Uh, Corinth receiving Priscilla and Aquila. Antioch sending off Paul and Barnabas. It's a, it's a church that scatters well and that makes good gospel goodbyes trusting that those goodbyes would lead to the gospel's advance throughout the world. And yet, though they were scattered throughout all the Mediterranean, Phoebe and Sinecre, Priscilla and Aquila in Rome, Paul, wherever he is at this time, he's on his way to, to Jerusalem from Macedonia, their love and affection for one another never changed, did it? Isn't it refreshing to know that Christian unity is not something that depends on space and time? 
Christian unity is one that spans it. Thousands of years later, we're reading love letters from, the Roman, from Paul to the Roman church. Paul, who was not even in their city. That's the kind of affection we have as God's people. We're a global body. We see this especially in verse 16, when Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Again, don't kiss anyone. Um, that may lead to a whole new host of problems. Uh, we may be reading Corinthians if we do that. All the churches of Christ greet you. What a, what a subtle, that's, verse, that's just verse 16 at the very end. Do you see where he says that all the churches of Christ greet you? When Paul sends his greetings to the Roman church, he sends a greeting from all churches of Christ. He's representing, the love that he has for them is representative of the love that is found in various different cities with various different churches from various different congregations. Now, I think at a minimum, this greeting shows that the Roman church is not a church in isolation. It's a church that stands as an interconnected piece of a global body. I think God has called every healthy church to a level of autonomy, right? So no one outside of Grace Church needs to lead Grace Church and tell Grace Church what to do. Do you guys all agree with that? Like you should have local elders, local pastors who know you pastoring you in this local community without anybody in DC or in Rome telling them what to do. Do we agree on that? Okay, that's called autonomy. However, churches sometimes confuse autonomy with isolation. Autonomy is recognizing that God has established this church in this community for a unique purpose to be led by local leaders. Isolation convinces us that we are God's work on earth. We are the body of Christ. There's a danger in talking about Grace Church as the church because it's not the church, is it? It's an aspect of the church. If you want to talk about God's church, well, you got to branch that out into Nicaragua and Colombia and Africa and China and Russia. And if any of the penguins are becoming Christians, Antarctica. You have to branch that out. It's a, it's a global church. Every gospel-centered church is a church that doesn't see itself in isolation. It's not so concerned with just what's happening here. Instead, it's more concerned with what God is doing throughout the world. Every local church is the embodiment or is a visible local expression of a global entity that can't be seen. People in Ovilla cannot see the Christians worshiping in China but they can see this. We today, right now, are the visible expression of an invisible church spread through every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. What God is doing here is just a small part of a very big work that spans thousands of years. That's been ongoing since Genesis 3.15 when God first told the serpent that he was gonna crush his head through the offspring of the woman. We're a small part. We hold a small little section of real estate in history and in geography. But God's doing something much bigger than us. It seems like from this greeting, that, that especially the all churches of Christ greet you, he's greeting the Romans, but he's reminding them there's a lot going on. Corinth, Galatia, Philippi, Ephesus, 
all the churches of Christ greet you. We're a global family. Now, sandwiched in the middle of this greeting section, Paul gives a final appeal for the Romans to be on guard against those who would threaten the beautiful unity that we have just read about. This begs the question, what is the most threatening thing to the unity of a church? What is the most, if I were to ask you that today, what is the thing that threatens this church more than anything? Not a budget, not government powers, nothing, no, no weather outside except dividers and bad doctrine. People who divide, divisive people, and contrary doctrine. Paul writes, I appeal to you. This is, I'm begging you. Verse 17, I beg you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Now, Paul assumes that there will be people who will come into the church who will divide through anti-gospel principles. And he has a very simple advice. It's gonna rub some of us wrong, but here's what his advice is. Stay away from them. Why? Well, because they're dangerous. Dividers in the church are not nice gospel-centered people. They're people who are trying to fracture the work of God. Uh, New, the New Testament takes divisiveness extremely seriously. In fact, I think it's one of the most under-obeyed commands in all of Scripture. We tend to tolerate divisive people way more than we should. Titus 3, for example, Paul gives Titus this command. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once, and then twice have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a poor person is warped and sinful and he is self-condemned. Now let's define divisiveness here for a second, right? Because in reading this, we might be thinking, we might be on guard against the guy that's gonna come in and say, you know, that Jesus is one of many ways to heaven, right? We might be on guard against the prosperity gospel. Sadly, division doesn't always happen that way. You see, bad doctrine goes beyond just explicit heresy, okay? Sometimes divisive people come in cloaked in all the right doctrinal stances. They read the right books. They listen to the same preachers you do. They speak all the right theological message. And yet we find in the New Testament that sound doctrine has more to do than with who you listen to on the podcast, more than the books that are on your shelf more than your, doct your personal doctrinal stance. Instead, as 1 Timothy 3, uh, chapter 6, verse 3 shows, good doctrine is in accordance with godliness. It's in accordance with godliness. Paul goes on to state that sound doctrine should not produce quarreling, envy, dissension, slander, or evil suspicions. I have seen many a church split over tertiary junk from people who believe the right doctrine. You see, unhealthy doctrine, an unhealthy doctrinal sense, a divisive person is someone who comes in and they don't explicitly come in to divide the church with their anti-gospel teaching. They come in and they distract from the gospel. There are people who may, if you ask them, say, yes, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, but look at this carpet. Are you serious? 
How can we be in the same building with people who pick this color? That's the kind of divisive people that we see throughout church history. It's not just people who come in with explicitly heretical teachings. Sometimes that happens. These are people, divisive people are people, and even if they give a head nod to the right doctrinal stances, distract from the gospel in whatever means they can. They find issues with the budget. They find issues with so-and-so staff member. They have gossip to share and they want to stir up strife. And even though they would say, yes, I believe the Bible's the word of God, they live in such a way that is contrary to the gospel message. Paul says, be aware of those people. Be aware of those people. They are after their own appetites, their own selfish desires. And there's a lot at stake. As Paul points out, the Romans' reputation of being obedient people, their continued goodness, and their gospel-centered unity is all at stake. Paul wants them to maintain a healthy testimony. And as we know from Romans chapter one, Jesus will take down a church's lampstand if it does not maintain a gospel unity, a good testimony. He will remove it. He, churches die all the time. Jesus snuffs out candlestands all the time for a church drifting away from the gospel. And it all begins when we all get distracted by other things. So I, with Paul, just want to plead to you for the sake of your reputation as Grace Church, as being obedient, good, and innocent people to maintain a gospel-centered unity and to not let anyone distract you with other tertiary matters. You see, it's not just having a different opinion. It's trying to develop schisms and splinters in the church with your opinion. Beware of divisive people. Now, Paul's warning comes with a promise. The church is unity and therefore the test, its local testimony in the gospel is at stake, but the church will not always have to worry about these dangers. Paul makes a promise. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now that phrase, the God of peace, is meant to contrast, to sit on the, the opposite side of the danger of divisiveness. As dangerous as divisiveness is, the God of peace will defeat the great divider, Satan himself. And we can live in trust for that. How do we know this? Because our great Lord and Savior has already crushed Satan under his feet. And so we can know that the great serpent's gonna be crushed under our feet. Now, with all that's in stake, we continue to trust the grace of Jesus, knowing that that grace will never abandon us. It's amazing how much can be gained when the church says hello to each other, right? Not something that, as I prepared through Romans 16, I thought, man, why did I dread this text? Such beautiful unity found in just a simple greeting text from Romans 16, and yet we should not be surprised. Because in a gospel-centered church, even something as mundane as a greeting is saturated with the gospel. A community that has truly been impacted by grace displays an evident, an evident, not a hidden, an evident sacrificial love for each other and an indivisible unity. Nothing should be able to break this church apart unless God sends people out. That's the only thing that should divide a church is when God says, send them. 
In a healthy church, that's the way it goes. Now, though this section is simply Paul's hello to the Roman Christians, I think we have a lot to mull over, don't we? A lot to think about. We should pray that if the Lord still has not returned a thousand years from now, future generations will be as inspired and amazed by the simple but affectionate way we even said hello to each other. Can you imagine if God doesn't, if God doesn't send his son a thousand years from now, someone stumbles across and they're digging, they stumble across a letter that you were writing to someone in the church. And just you saying, hey, we miss you. Hey, we're praying for you. Suppose they dig up your old iPhone and they open up your text messages to your fellow congregants. What would they find? Would they find greet Rufus and his mother? Because they've been a mother to me. Would they, would they find greet our brother Adam, my fellow coworker in the gospel? Would they say, say hi to Iris Howard and Clint Howard, who have suffered a wanna well. My fellow prisoners of the gospel. May they look back on this fellowship in 3020, if the Lord tarries, and see a testimony that speaks of the God of peace and see his grace that never left us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the unity you have brought us in the gospel. We trust you, Father. We long for you to preserve this unity, which means we long for you to keep us centered in the gospel. Father, we ask that you will let us not drift from the gospel, but that a thousand years from now, this church will still have a reputation of being a people who are affectionate for each other because they love the great grace and they're thankful for the way that you have saved us. Father, we just pray that we will be a gospel healthy church for generations to come. And we pray this in your son's name, amen.